We're pleased to be joined on the line now by Robin Murphy. Robin is the director of a new documentary, Women of Steel, about the Jobs Women campaign at the Port Kembla Steelworks in Wollongong in the 1980s. Robin, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, great to talk. Thanks, Ali. No problem. Let's start with painting a bit of a picture of Wollongong and specifically the situation for women in trying to gain employment in the steelworks at uh, Port Kembla. It's, it strikes me that uh, it, people may take it for granted now that women, of course, have every uh, right to, to work in this sort of industry. Very, very different situation uh, back then in the early uh, 1980s. So paint a bit of a picture for us of just how difficult it was. What sort of obstacles were in place for women in terms of trying to get jobs in the steel industry at that time in Wollongong? Well, I guess, I mean, the first thing you have to consider is that unemployment was very high in Wollongong. It always has been, actually. And um, at that time in the early 1980s, um, two-thirds of the young unemployed were female. So this was a, a, an indication that something needed to be done. On top of that, um, of course, there was sort of your normal workers, teachers, or, you know, in a bank or in a, as a shop assistant, but um, for most of the women, they could not get work in industries like BHP's Australian Iron and Steel Steelworks or metal manufacturers or any of the other uh, manufacturing industries, they were told that there were no jobs for women. Women were actually catching a bus about four o'clock in the morning to go up to Sydney to find work up there and then coming back late in the evening. So uh, that was the general picture, but mm. there was also specific things that happened which I don't know if you want me to tell you about. Yeah, well, just before we get to that, uh, uh, Robin, my understanding is that there were some jobs for women, but they were unskilled work, it was lower uh, paid work, and BHP AIS very much limited uh, women's work to those, those specific sort of unskilled roles. Well, in 1980, BHP was not employing any women. They had employed women in 1973 when there'd been a bit of a, a media thing, event, um, highlighting the fact that women could do the work and so BHP begrudgingly employed a, a couple of hundred women at that time but they all ended up working in a place called the tin mill which was repetitive work it was um, but you know no, look the pay was fine um, it was just it was very much a sex segregated workforce even in in the 1970s so when we were campaigning, we were just campaigning for a job equal to, to men. Speaking of the campaigning, let our listeners know exactly how that campaign began. I mean, how did it all start to start to coalesce? Well, I think the icing on the cake that forced us into doing something was that there'd been a chicken shop owner who'd employed 40 women over the space of six months and he'd been taking them upstairs for a so-called medical in his flat uh, and he was actually getting subsidised by the government by employing um, young women. And luckily one of the women uh, had union parents and so the union raised it at the local South Coast Labor Council. And basically uh, he got run out of town, as uh, one of the women in the film says. He, um, 
he no longer had his chicken shop because of the campaigning we did, but we also had a public seminar on sexual harassment and unemployment. And at that, uh, uh, at that um, meeting, we set up an action committee to campaign for jobs at the steelworks because we believed that BHP had a responsibility to the community and that, you know, we, we knew that we could do the jobs and we, we felt that it was fairly discriminatory, the, the hiring practice, because when you applied for a job, you, your name would be taken and then be put in a separate file gathering dust with about two and a half thousand other women. Hmm. Now, you mentioned the local uh, Labor Council, that you were supported by the local Labor Council, but tell us about the some of the attitudes, the dispositions of unions more generally. I mean, that was, I suppose, still the or the very uh, last hurrah of the, the craft unions period. So we were talking about multiple unions that you were developing relationships with and were they were they reluctant to support the campaign or did they come on board with it very early? Look, I think Wollongong would be the exception to the rule in the 1980, you know, at the beginning of 1980 because the Labor Council and the un- affiliated unions were very progressive they were very left-wing. Um, they were influenced. Merv Nixon, for example, who was Secretary of Labor Council, was a member of the Communist Party. They had a lot of strong influence and they had a record of supporting progressive things like freeing Nelson Mandela. I mean, they were involved in solidarity campaigns around that, around Cuba, around um, helping uh, different migrant organisations like Chile Solidarity Committee. So they had a very good progressive record. So when we approached them, we actually got fantastic support from all the unions on the South Coast. It's, it's a point worth teasing out, I think, Robin, because over here in Western Australia, it's not very well known that the Australian Meat Industry Employees Union played an absolutely pivotal role. In fact, was a pioneering organisation in terms of fighting for equal rights for women and equal pay for women in the workplace. And I think it's forgotten by... Uh, by many people now, that uh, unions did play a crucial role, didn't they, in, in fighting for, for equal rights for women in, in the workplace? Yes, well, the, the meat industry, I remember um, right just before the campaign, I was inspired by a woman called Stella Nord who who talked about the equal pay dispute with uh, you know that the meat workers... Employees Union ran, uh, and yeah, so people like her and other women, uh, active unionists, were in a group called the Working Women's Charter, which came out of the ACTU, one of the ACTU bodies. Um, so, um, but of course, don't forget, we're still campaigning around equal pay now. So the initiative then was fantastic, and just shows how how long. A struggle this is. Now, getting back to, I suppose, some of the excuses that the company used for why women weren't employed in the steel industry, what sort of excuses did they use? My understanding is that there was, for instance, and it's quite an infamous provision, a so-called weight limit, where it was supposed that women couldn't lift heavy objects, specifically objects over, over 16 kilograms. It just seems so astonishing to look back at how, I guess, the crudeness of that sort of discrimination. Tell us about that sort of aspect of, of the legislation at the time, the excuses that BHP AIS used. Well, they did. You're right. They did use the 35 pound or 16 kilo weight restriction, which is a New South Wales Shops and Factories Act legislation, which said that women couldn't lift um, more than, than that weight. 
Um, however, you've got to remember at that time, nurses throughout the country were lifting far more than 16 kilos, as um, is pointed out in the film. It's equivalent to about a four-year-old on your hip. But the company, in the beginning of the negotiations, right back in 1980 and all through the court case, argued, look, we would have loved to have employed women, but because of this weight restriction, we can't do it. And what the Equal Opportunity Commission did was they commissioned an independent survey into weight-restricted jobs at the steelworks. And because the findings came out in the court case that the company had absolutely nothing written down to prove what was weight-restricted and what wasn't. It was just a curtain they were hiding behind because I think that they believed that anti-discrimination legislation just didn't matter to them. It was all industrial legislation. I'll pick up on that point, Robin, anti-discrimination and equal opportunity legislation. Again, that's that's one thing that's, I think, taken for granted now. You know, It's not even thought of as something that's come, a victory that's come through struggle and, and campaigning. It's just assumed, well, that's legislation that, that's there that can be called upon. But of course, the Jobs for Women campaign was absolutely instrumental in giving that legislation teeth, really, wasn't it, in terms of the, the court case before the New South Wales Anti-Discrimination Board and also the, the Equal Opportunity Board. And this was, a, a, I understand even to this day, the longest running sex discrimination case of its, of its kind in New South Wales legal history, an epic, very long campaign. Tell us just how important it was in terms of that, that, that aspect of the campaign going through the courts. Well... I mean, we were, you're right, we were testing legislation that had never been tested before. And uh, what we found was we, we always wanted to run what we saw as a class action. And in fact, it's Australia's longest running class action, you know, Vic, Victoria's class action as well. But um, uh, at that time, because no precedents had been set in uh, employment discrimination, we had to start by running 34 women as a precedent before we could run the class action. So it was an extensive, long-running legal battle. And even right at the beginning when, well, by it was 1983 when we realised we had to run a court case, um, the, we couldn't run it without legal aid. And it took us nearly 18 months to get legal aid. And one of the reasons that they said we couldn't get legal aid was because there was no precedent set, which is a catch-22 because there'll never be a precedent set if someone doesn't get legal aid so they can set a precedent. So so there were so many hurdles mm. in in you know going through this whole campaign. And the other one that I forgot to mention with the £35 weight restriction is that our campaign was also instrumental in getting rid of that discriminatory legislation on 35-pound weight restriction and putting into place a much healthier and safe uh, manual handling code, not just for women but mm. for men as well. So, so that was another part of the case. Yeah, it had OHS implications as well. Now, a very important aspect of this uh, campaign was, of course, the involvement of migrant working class women. Uh, tell us about that. Uh, tremendously important for advances for working class women generally, of course, but also that had that particular aspect for, for migrant women as well. Well, yes. Look, as a as an activist, as a socialist, as a feminist, and as someone that, you know, um, <laughs> likes to take up a challenge, I mean, I, right at the beginning of the campaign, 
uh, we felt that if we did not involve migrant women, it would not be a genuine women's campaign that reflected the population of the Illawarra because you know, most of the population did have English as a second language. People had migrated here. Families had migrated on the basis of work at the steelworks, um, the men, <laughs> and um, the women had had an expectation to work there too. And, of course, when they got here and they were told there were no jobs for women and then they saw about our campaign, they joined. But had we not joined them, it just would have been another marginal campaign and what we had to do, and it's all about respect, human respect, was we printed everything and when we talked, everything was multilingual, everything. Because, I mean, if the women were going to get involved, they needed all of the ammunition, um, you know, in, in their understanding of why they should get involved, particularly in a court case, because their view of courts were they were just for naughty people, you know, and they'd seen, they'd heard in their time in Australia that courts were pretty much for, you know, um, <laughs> for bad people who got, you know, things. <laughs> yeah, um, so that was a fairly big challenge too, but because we had people coming down from Sydney to Wollongong explaining about the laws, explaining why we needed to do this and doing it in the languages of the women. That was a key factor in our campaign being successful. And look, to be quite honest, I mean, if you put yourself in their position, if you were in a country where you couldn't speak the language and you were desperate for work, um, going to court is, it is a huge leap of faith. And I think that those women, they're, they're my heroes. Extraordinarily they, brave. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No doubt. Look, there's so many more aspects of this to explore, Robin. It's such an incredible, inspiring story. And, of course, you can learn more from the documentary, Women of Steel. Just briefly before we finish up, but tell us about uh, the experience of making that film because a personal connection for you because my understanding is that you had trained as a, a filmmaker and then, and then worked as a, in the steel industry yourself and then returned many years later to, to making a film. So what, what was that like? <laughs> well, you know, I feel like a cat. How many lives has it <laughs> No, I, I mean, you're right. I, I was at the first in intake of the Australian Film and Television School, as it was known then, uh, along with Gillian Armstrong and Phil Noyce and some great filmmakers that went through that first year. Um, I, I tried to stay in the film industry and got quite disheartened. I, I'd made a couple of films. I wanted to make a film about prostitution, I got a little bit of fun, funding for research and I just it just hit a blank wall and I couldn't go any further with it. And as an activist, um, yeah, you know, I I went back to being active in, in uh, you know, women's politics and socialist politics and found myself in Wollongong with the idea of starting a campaign so for women's rights in the workforce. So... That was a huge challenge that I, I took on, you know. <laughs> I, was, I was dying to get in there. And um, so I worked 30 years in the steelworks. I uh, hadn't made a film since um, the first film. One of the first films I'd made had made it to the Sydney Film Festival while I'd been at the film and television school. Hadn't made a film for 47 years. Mm. I knew that I wanted to make this film. I just couldn't do it while I was working in the steelworks. I retired nine years ago. 
um, and I um, moved way down the far south coast of New South Wales and I, I actually had the space to actually start bringing everything together. So it's been... I've been making it for about 10 years, 11 years. Amazing, amazing, <laughs> amazing journey, Robin. And, and how can people see this film? I understand it's premiering in Sydney early next week, but for us over here in, in the Wild West, is there a way we can get hold of the film or you know, organise uh, public screenings and so forth? Yes, well, we did have um, one screening. In there was one recently, the, yes. Yeah. I realised we've interviewed yeah. you a bit late for that. We want to organise another screen. Well, all <laughs> the more reason for people to... You can just hop online to our website, which is, you know, the, it's www.womenofsteelfilm.com and um, there's a section there about look at, viewing the film. And uh, you can actually... Look, people can host another screening in Perth or wherever you are, Fremantle, wherever you are, um, and our distributor books the cinemas, takes care of the tickets, everything. If um, you don't reach a certain point where you break even, it gets cancelled. But otherwise, and then you can go to hosting just a community screening in a, in a local hall, at your schools, at your universities, at your workplace. There's a whole number of options for anyone that wants to see Women of Silk, because it's a great um, it's a great film for discussion about what we're looking at today in terms of um, you know insecure work and people having the right to a decent wage and and how when you do come together and f- forge alliances with all of your supporters and people that just support that idea, you can win against the, the biggest of odds. And, I mean, we won against BHP, so there was nothing bigger than them at that time.